This morning, we end our journey through the book of 1 Samuel with chapter 31. And as you're turning there, let me ask some questions of you here as we begin. <clears throat> what will people say about you when you die? But what will be your legacy, your theme of your life? Every person here this morning has a primary theme to their life that can be viewed by others now and will be felt by others when you're gone. For some, it was an ambition to build your own business, to grow it, to give lots of time and energy to it, to nurse it along and become a, so it can become uh, freestanding on its own. Ambitious people. For others, your theme right now in your life is raising children. So that means you're tired. Managing a home, serving with your time and your energy and your emotion, so you're exhausted. And yet others who live their lives with the constant pursuit of fun, whether that's vacations or type of work or the friends that you surround yourself with, they, they want to have fun. You're, you're a fun person. Christians, too, should have a dominant theme for their lives. The fruit of the Spirit is one that came to my mind as I was preparing. The love, joy, peace, patience. And then the, the, the patterns there we see in 1 Corinthians 13 of love, hope, and faith. Now, if we were going to back to this book here, 1 Samuel, and then even the, first, the second Samuel, the, the theme that summarized David's life, the, the theme that dominated his life was a life of faith. Just like the Apostle Paul, his theme was gospel passion. And and Peter was love for Jesus Christ. But Christian friends, what is your theme of your life? What will you be known by when you die? For the first king of Israel, Saul, his theme wasn't great. He was known for being a hard-hearted, prideful man. Fearful, stubborn, irrational, unrepentant. Isaiah wrote for us in chapter 55, verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. But sadly, for Saul's life, it was a record of continual running away from the pardon of God. Instead, living independent of God and living for himself. Alexander McLaren summarizes and says, There's no sign that Saul ever sought to cultivate his moral character. And, and a long course of indulgence and self-will developed cruelty and gloomy suspicion and passionate anger and left him the victim and slave of his own causeless hate. There's only one way a life like that will end, and it's in tragedy. There are themes to our lives. I pray that you'll consider the theme of your life this morning as we look at the end of Saul. His life will end here in chapter 31, and there's some things that I want to draw out, some things that I think we can learn from the end of Saul's life. So if you haven't turned there, please do, and, and join me in prayer. I'll pray for you, you pray for me, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this morning, we thank you that we could come and gather together as the body of Christ here at Edgewood and Milton, and, and we ask God that you would be glorified in this service. I pray for your people that are seated here this morning that they would hear and receive your words. You would be their teacher this morning, God. That you would instruct them, that you would guide them and comfort them, and that you would allow them to, to leave changed 
different than when they came in this morning. And we'll be sure to give you all the honor and glory for what you'll do in this place. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So my plan is just to walk through this chapter. It's a short chapter, just 13 verses, and I'll have an outline as we go. Uh, so if you're taking notes, just try to keep up as we go through here. There's not a big outline, but some themes of Saul's life that I want to draw out. But chapter 31, starting at verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain at Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchiashua, the sons of Saul. Chapter begins as the battle begins. Remember back in chapter 28, Saul walked away um, from God and walked to a witch to find direction for his life. This is the next morning, chapter 31. As David and his men are in chapter 30, at the same time set out to battle the Amalekites, Saul and his men begin the war now with the Philistines. And Saul watches his army fall right in front of him. And his own sons die, including faithful Jonathan, right before his eyes. And parents, this morning, don't be fooled. Your children will suffer for your mistakes. All sin has consequences. We suffer because of the sins of others, and our children are no different. There's a result of living in a fallen world. The response for believing parents is to be wise, to be careful, to, to seek, to be obedient to God's word. And Saul's sons here have to deal with the sin of their father. And ultimately, they will die because of his sin, because of his disobedience to God. And this should give us pause. This should be somber for us as parents. It's also good here in this moment to remember Jonathan. He isn't talked a lot about in this book, but when he is, his example is tremendous. He remained a true friend to David and a faithful son to Saul, even though his dad was mad, crazy. He surrendered his kingship to David. He sacrificed his life for Saul. Jonathan was willing to go to that bitter end with a father that even tried to have him killed. Jonathan was exactly where God would have him, right by the side of his father. And we can learn something from Jonathan's, Jonathan's life of faithfulness. I'm sure Jonathan grew up thinking of all that he would be able to do as a king. He had hopes, he had dreams, he had desires. But when those were compared to obedience to God's word, they all took a back seat. Jonathan would obey God more than pursuing his ambition. We can learn a lot from Jonathan. His humility stands out the most to me, especially in stark difference to his father, who seemed to lack any humility the last 40 years of his life. Jonathan, to us, is a testament to what faithfulness looks like. He could have fought for his rights. He, he could have fought for his position. Instead, in this book, he gladly gives it up in love and adoration to his God. The theme of his life was faithfulness, and he shows us that a worthy life does not depend on the circumstances that we live. He lived in the most dangerous times and suffered from the most thankless obligation to his crazy father. And through it all, Jonathan's faithfulness to God, to his friends, and, and even to his father allowed him to persevere with integrity and to smell the roses even though he was surrounded by thorns. You may think that Jonathan's life is tragic, but 
author Rail, uh, Dale Ralph Davis says, what is tragic about remaining faithfully in the calling that God has assigned us? Was it tragic when Jonathan laid aside a kingdom he could not have to enter a kingdom he could not lose? The answer, friends, is no, it's not tragic. It was glorious in the eyes of God, and it should be respected by us. Jonathan escaped eternal tragedy to enter into God's glory forever. His life wasn't a waste. It was God-glorifying. And may our theme for our life be like Jonathan. Some of you are presented with the opportunity to be like Jonathan right now. But maybe you're fighting against it. You want what you want, and ultimately you're fighting against God. You're fighting against the plan that God has for your life. And I would encourage you, friends, to stop. Surrender to God and submit your life to him. It will be worth it. It won't be a waste. And Jonathan is, is clear for us. His life is clear for us in this book. It wasn't a waste. Verse 3 continues the story. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Ultimately, Saul is worried about how they will treat him if they were to capture him. But the sad part is that there's no mention of, of Saul concerning himself about God in this chapter. God is far from his mind and his words and his actions. God has departed Saul and he's now acting on his own. Now friends, this is tragic. Saul dies just as he lived, apart from God. He lived as a hardened, self-willed man without faith in God's salvation. Not even able to cry out to God with his dying breath. You remember in this book, there was so much hope for Saul. There really was. You remember, he was an impressive man. We first read of him in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. And he had a son, this father, Saul's father, had a son whose name was Saul, and a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any other people. He was an impressive man. I hear that height is a big deal. I don't buy it. Today, height just means it's harder to find clothes, and you don't fit in vehicles, and flying is a pain. I grew up being tall. The pressure to be everything for people was hilarious to me. I mean, people thought, since you're tall, you must be fast. And I thought, really? You need to watch. <laughs> the only benefit for height in today's is that I can reach things for my wife in the kitchen. But not so when First Samuel was written. To be tall was a thing of honor. In chapter 10, Saul is chosen and anointed as king. In chapter 11, he defeats the Ammonites, which brings greater um, joy to the people. This is Saul. This is their king. And, and, and the hope for Saul's success was strong. In chapter 10, verse 24, Samuel speaks of him. In verse 24, he says, And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see, see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted. you remember this? Long live the king. Saul was their man. He was an impressive man. 
The shocking thing is you walk through the book after that great victory in chapter 11, the pinnacle of his honor, and you might think that this is just the beginning for Saul. But it was the end then. It was downhill from there. The next 20 chapters or 40 years chronicle the end of Saul's life, and it's ugly. Saul was an impressive man, but he was more impressed with himself than anyone else, even God. See, Saul's greatest problem throughout his life wasn't the enemies of God. His greatest problem wasn't Goliath. His his greatest problem wasn't the Philistines. No, his greatest problem was himself. And there's some things that we need to take notice of Saul here. We, We walk through these things way back in the fall when we we looked at the overview of the book of 1 Samuel. And I think it's time to review. Pop quiz. You ready? There's three things here if you're keeping an outline. First, Saul was religious, but he never knew God. Saul was religious, but he never knew God. Saul was brought up to know about God, to talk about God, to even worship and sacrifice to God, but as the years passed, Saul never knew God. He, he kept up the religious practices after he was king. He, he purged the land of the wizards and witches, but then he went away and went to them anyways. He fought God's battles against the Philistines. Not very well. He didn't listen when commanded to do something. He was even a good dad and a, and a family man, but he also threatened his son and cursed his wife. He even prayed to God, but only when he was in a jam that he couldn't get out by himself. How else do you see in the book that Saul was religious but never knew God? Well, the first thing is he never trusted God. This was shown most publicly when he failed to obey God. He, he showed by his disobedience to God's word that God ultimately wasn't trustworthy. And so he never yielded his life to him. This is a testimony of his life. If you turn over a few books to 1 Chronicles chapter 10, it talks about Saul. 1 Chronicles 10, 13 and 14. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. And in that, Saul never trusted God. You may say, as we walk through the book, he, he did seek guidance, didn't he? I mean, he, he brought the, the Urim and the Thummim. He tried to hear from God. He, he called out to God late in life, didn't he? Didn't, didn't Saul really try to seek God? Friends, it may be hard to see and understand in there. In our culture, that believes you can do multiple things, you can worship multiple gods and still get the good stuff. See, we want what we want, and when we don't get what we want, we look elsewhere. This is American Christianity. You can serve the God of the Bible from 10.30 to noon on Sundays. That won't take precedence for the rest of the week. Sundays is when we talk about God. It's when we read the Bible. I mean, that's what it's like for most American Christians. They really don't trust God. No, they, they haven't really yielded their life to him. So God can have Sundays from 10.30 to noon, but he can't have anything during the week, not 7 a.m. to 7.30 to read or the Bible, not even an hour every two weeks just to have a friends over to find out how God is working their lives. No, God isn't trustworthy for all of our life. 
And when trials come, and they will come, friends, you have nowhere to turn because you have shut out everyone, including God. And God hasn't become our friend. He hasn't become someone that we love and cherish and talk with. No, God becomes a magic rabbit foot. See, our problem is that we don't want to find God to know him. No, we want to find him in order to use him to make our lives finally work and for our problems to disappear. And this is Saul. See, Saul wasn't seeking God to know him, to love him, to serve him. He was only seeking God when he was in a jam and he couldn't get out of it. And it seems as though time and time again when Samuel would come, he would take God's word in and he would listen, but then he would reshape it for his own liking. And this is dangerous, friends. This is the plight of so many American churches today, taking God's word and adapting it to their own liking. And this is the same for nominal Christians too. Are you a nominal Christian? Meaning a Christian only by name? You come to church, tell your coworkers that you're a Christian, but really you're bored with God. You know why? It's because you don't know God. You only know of him. And you only call out to him when you want something. You're like Saul, a Christian by name only. See, Saul didn't trust God, and it was fueled by a second problem. He was never satisfied in God. God was never enough for Saul. When God told him to go wipe out the Amalekites, to not to take anything, not to enrich himself on their stuff, Saul wouldn't listen. You see, Saul wanted more. He always wanted more. He wouldn't wipe them out. No, he wanted their stuff. He wanted their treasures, their riches. He wanted monuments made for him. He wanted more. And when God told Saul that David would replace him on the throne and be king, Saul didn't like that. You see, being a child of God wasn't ever going to be enough for Saul. He had to have the position. Once he tasted it and he loved it, he had to have it. And so he fights to keep it. He will even murder to keep it. Because he was never satisfied in God alone. He always had to have more. Are you the same way? God doesn't give you something and you're like, God, no, this isn't, this isn't good. It's not acceptable, God. I, I want this, whether it's a spouse or peace at home or to win all of your arguments. And then you start to hate the David that God put in your life. And you begin to plot ways to kill the David that God gave you. You're jealous. You have worked so hard. You've put too many hours into this to give it up. David needs to go away. You hate David. He's the problem. He's the issue that stands between you and what you really want. 
Friends, the issue and issues in our life have nothing to do with the David that God put there. It has to do with the dissatisfaction you have with your own life, your, your dissatisfaction with God. David was put into the life of Saul because Saul wanted to have satisfaction in anything other than God. And, and God loved David or loved Saul so much. He, he loved him so much he was willing to draw this out of his heart. And when Saul is confronted with his own heart, he didn't want God. He wanted himself. And friends, if you're going to be a healthy Christian, these two things have to be true of you. You have to trust God, submit your life to him, and you have to find your satisfaction in him. You have to find your satisfaction in him, in him alone. And all of our spiritual problems come back to these two issues. We, don't, we either don't understand or believe how God feels about us, or we don't value that enough. That's why we seek satisfaction in this world. We look for love in other people to bring the satisfaction that only God can bring. That's why some of you step so far away from God's word when you're looking for a spouse. You want someone to love you the way that God can, the only way that God can. That's why some of you have marriage difficulties. You want to be completed by your spouse and when it's, and when it's God that was there to complete you. You would much rather listen to the advice of Tom Cruise who says, you complete me. Instead of God who says, I died for you. So like the prodigal son, you venture out on your own, away from God, looking for satisfaction in anything other than God. And God waits. Oh, the patience of God. He waits until you hit the bottom. Until you see at the very low, it's only God that can bring satisfaction that you so desperately need. You see, friends, this is why the gospel is the remedy for all of our problems, for all of our rebellion in life. In the gospel, you see how God feels about you. And you see what a treasure God is. And the foundation of knowing God is knowing from his word how he views you, how he values you. Here's the connect to Saul, though. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 7, Jesus is speaking, and he says in verses 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And you might have read that before and thought, I, I guess I need to do more stuff. I need to be more faithful. I need to give more of my time. I can do it. I can be more for God. But friends, Jesus doesn't say, I, I, do more stuff. He doesn't say, you didn't do enough. No, he says, you never knew me. You never understood who God was. You never understood his grace. You never understood how he feels about you. And some of you are maybe here this morning thinking that Christian, uh, Christians do and Christianity is all about doing and doing and doing. 
But, but, but really, friends, being a Christian is rooted in done. It's all done. You can't do anything to add to it. It's, it's done. It is finished. And that's what our life should be rooted in. Not yourself, not your work, not your joy, not your wisdom, not your pursuit of you. No, it's Christ. It is finished. It's done. And being a Christian is accepting what God has done for you. And the gospel is God declaring that Christ has satisfied the law of God, that he's accomplished what you could not, and it is finished. And friends, when you understand this, and you believe it, and you cherish it, you will love God, and you will want to obey him naturally. You'll be obeying the will of God for your life, and he will know you, and you will know him. And you will love him, not because of all that you think he can do for you, but because of all that he did for you on that cross. See, Saul knew religion, but he never knew God. Second, Saul was prideful, and he never displayed genuine humility. In chapter 13, Saul disobeys Samuel's command to wait for Samuel to come before the offering. And waiting would have showed that Saul trusted in the Lord, but he trusted in himself. He was worried of what the others would think of him. And when Samuel comes, he rebukes Saul and tells him that his time as king is over. And in chapter 15, Saul yet again disobeys God's clear commands. And Samuel confronts him. And after he sees the monument that was set up for Saul, he again rebukes him. You know, chapter 15, it was, uh, this was a huge mistake. One that will affect the nation of Israel for years to come. And Saul basically confesses his wrongdoing and says in chapter 15, verse 30, yet he says, yeah, I did this. But then he says to Samuel, yeah, honor me now before the elders of my people, before Israel. And it's clear from that verse where the heart of Saul is. He's worried more about what everyone else thinks of him than what God thinks. Saul's prideful. He's dishonest. He lacks integrity. Three traits that you don't want to see in a leader, right? The situation with chapter 15 just sets the stage for Saul's complete downfall for the rest of the book. Saul becomes tormented in jealousy. He's, he's being eclipsed by David and he hates it. He hates that he's being removed. And he seeks to kill David. At one point, and we covered this, Saul's jealousy and obsession to remove David causes Saul to kill 85 priests because one had helped David. Saul is a lunatic, and he will literally do anything to save face. Saul, the, the leader of God's people, becomes the opponent of God's will. He is spiraling out of control. He consults a medium that we see in chapter 28. And see, for Saul, his life is tragic. He's, he's, his life is controlled by pride. And listen, proud people never prosper in God's economy. Pride will always be destroyed. Pride is conflicting to the Christian life. It takes glory that belongs to God and keeps it for itself. And the scary thing is, proud people usually don't know that they're proud. Pride is the greatest sin. Pride is what destroyed Satan. We see in this book, Saul is removed as king because Saul was prideful. He never displayed biblical humility. 
Third, Saul looked like he repented, but he never understood how to repent. Saul looked like he repented, but he never understood how to repent. I mean, in the book, he says he's sorry. He, he even weeps. He, he does religious things. But ultimately, Saul never really repents. He, he just goes through the motions. But here's the tragic thing. Saul probably believed that he had repented. He's almost surprised throughout his life that God is not paying attention to him. And Saul here is so self-deceived. Friends, this should scare you. It, it, it should keep you awake. Saul goes through all the motions of repentance, confession, prayer, weeping, religious activity, but he never deals with the real issues. He doesn't trust God to fully surrender his life to him. He, he doesn't value God enough to be satisfied in him. He doesn't know how to repent. So I asked this morning, do you know how to repent? Here are some signs maybe that you're not repenting. I know there's more, but I have five. First, you blame shift when you're caught in sin. You, you say things maybe like, you don't know how hard life is for me. Or it's been a hard year, I need to blow off some steam. The pressure I face is just too much. Or, or when someone confronts you, the one who is confronting you, 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 you confront them. Meaning you say to them, they're handling the situation. They're confronting you the wrong way. They need to confront you the right way. So you ignore what they say. It doesn't apply to you because they're wrong and how they approach you. Friends, in all this, you're, you're blame shifting. You aren't repenting. Biblical repentance takes responsibility and confesses sin. Second, you may repent out of fear of what you might lose. People uh, they might agree there is sin when, they're, uh, when they know that the consequences will be too much to absorb themselves. So they are acting in ways to satisfy the one who's hurt. If the losses are great enough to get their attention, they'll, they'll try to reform. If this is the entire motive for repentance, then they are not repenting at all. It's, it's the work of the law, not grace. It's out of fear, not hatred for their sin. Biblical repentance isn't worried about the consequences it's because they're grieved over their sin. Another sign, a third one, is unchanged behavior. This is a big one. Real repentance is not shown in an emotional response only, but in a changed life. Your mouth says you believe in Jesus, but your life says otherwise. You may have a card in the front of your Bible that says you were saved at camp at the age of nine, but your life says that you never knew God. Biblical repentance brings a change to your life. It brings a love for the Savior and a hatred for sin. Fourth, you can emotionally confess, but not repent. Friends, confession by itself is not repentance. Confession moves the lips. Repentance moves the heart. Naming an act as evil before God is not the same thing as leaving that act. Your confession may be honest and emotional, but if it doesn't affect your heart, it's not repentance. You, you may just see it as a way to get something off your chest. It's not godly sorrow, as 2 Corinthians 7 says. Repenting is recognizing the sin that you've done. 
to God and to man and how wicked your sin is and what God can do to forgive you of your sins. Godly sorrow results in a change of attitude toward God and a changed life. See, Saul shows us, he confesses with his mouth, but there was nothing else behind it. It was all a show. There was no substance to it. The last one I'll mention is general confession. A person who repents is, who does not understand repentance, sometimes repents too generally. Looking to, to repent to cover all their sins in one fell swoop. Really, most likely they're covering other sins. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. If there are no specific sins mentioned, no particular changes, there is no repentance. Sin has many heads, and so it cannot be dealt with in general terms. Friends, each head must be cut off. Biblical repentance is naming the sin and turning from that sin. See, ultimately, repentance is about the lordship of Christ. He is either your Lord or he isn't. There isn't a middle road. All sin, no matter how small, is absolute rejection of his lordship of your life. And repentance has its hope not in us, not in our abilities, but in the gospel. We can repent, we can turn from our sins, not because we're smart enough, not because we're strong enough, but because of the gospel. Because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Saul did not know how to repent. Repentance is full trust in God and complete satisfaction with God that leads to a full surrender to God. And parents, I know I pick on you a lot, parents. I'm in the same boat. That's why I do it, all right? Parents, your job in raising the kids that God has entrusted to you, that God has loaned to you, teach them repentance. Teach them how to repent. Parents, they won't learn this from the world. There's not a class in college that teaches repentance. Maybe in Bible college there is. Don't wait till then. The world won't teach them repentance. Only you will. If you sin in front of your kids, and I'm sure you will, and already have today possibly, you need to repent in front of your kids. Whether it was sinning to them or your spouse, you need to teach your kids how to repent by displaying to them what repentance is. Life as a Christian is a long road of repentance. We will keep on repenting until Jesus takes us home. And men, I've said this before and I'll say it again, we should be the chief repenters in our home. We set the standard for our homes and I pray that you will learn how to repent and that you will continue to do that. Saul never learned this. He didn't know God he didn't display humility, and he didn't know how to repent. And Saul dies a sinner's death. At the end of verse four, 
Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And so they cut off his head and stripped his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to their people. This is their gospel. Their gospel, good news. They've killed God's king. Verse 10 they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshia. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshia. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Saul dies a sinner's death and he was hung on the walls of the Philistines in shame forsaken by God. The Philistines here mock God at Saul's death because it looked like they had conquered God's king. God's king, Saul, was stripped of his armor and hung up for all the world to see. For the world to see that this is how God would seemingly be defeated. His man now killed, his head taken from him, Stripped, hung, and mocked. But God isn't done yet. Israel may fall at Gilboa. Saul may fall on his sword, but the words of God will not fall to the ground. His word is true, and it will surely come to pass. You see, there is another king in that background. In this story, in, in this these chapters, there's another king far away now rescuing his wives and families from the hands of Amalekites, but he's coming. God's man, his choice would come and, and reign on the throne. And right when you think God is defeated, when all hope is gone, the darkness has consumed, then God acts. David would be the king that Israel would need for this time, but there was still yet another king. David would actually be the prince because the real king was coming. Jesus would come to the throne the same way. See, for Jesus, the part of Saul would be played by us. We all, like Saul, had rejected God's lordship of our lives and we wouldn't trust in him fully. We wouldn't delight in him. We were condemned to die like Saul. But Jesus, after living a perfect, sinless life, would die just like Saul. He would be called the king of the Jews, fastened to a tree, and the enemies of God would rejoice at his death. They would strip him. They would mock him. Is this God's king? He couldn't even save himself. And Jesus would die this horrible death like Saul. But he doesn't die because of his sin. Jesus had no sin. No, he dies for our sin, for our rebellion, for our foolishness. And through Jesus' death, salvation would come. 
You see, just like Saul, through, the, through his death, God's people would have a king. And, and through Jesus' death and resurrection, we would have an eternal king. The resurrection of Jesus was like David's ascent to the throne. At the resurrection, Jesus was crowned king of the universe and offered salvation, but the only way was through the cross. For David to take the throne, which was God's hope for Israel, Saul had to die. For Jesus to take the throne is God's ultimate plan for salvation. First, he had to die. I read this week of a rabbi and why he refused to believe and why the Jews refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And the reason he said, quote, the primary promise was that the Messiah would end all wars and bring peace on earth. And he continued and said, those are the most important prophecies. I also read that Bart Ehrman, theologi theologically, theology, oh my goodness, theology professor at the University of North Carolina said something very similar. It was a debate and someone asked, what would convince you that Jesus was really who he said he was? And he said, had he brought the peace on earth that he promised? What both these men don't realize is that the greatest war on earth isn't out there. See, the real problem in this world isn't the Philistines. It isn't famine. It isn't poverty. It's not nuclear weapons. The greatest problem in this world is the heart of Saul and each and one of us. Jesus had to come to deal with our hearts. Otherwise, there would never be peace on earth. No matter how good the government would be. Or how talented leaders would at brokering peace. The biggest war on this planet is our hearts. And Jesus came to die for us. And what this rabbi and what this Professor Ehrman want when they're saying this, they want another Saul. They want another king like the other kings. They want to deal with the issues in this world the way that the world deals with them. And it won't work. God cannot and will not build his kingdom and fill it with a bunch of souls who don't want God as their king. Jesus had to come to bring the kingdom and he had to create a race of people that have peace with God so that we can have peace on earth. Jesus did away with the soul in each one of us by dying Saul's death for us. He took our place. And we receive his death for us that gives us peace with God, which gives us hearts for the kingdom. We have peace first with God and then with one another. See, before the world can be saved, you and I have to be saved. Before Jesus can solve the problems out there, he has to solve the problems in here. Before David could sit on the throne, Saul would have to die. And Jesus will literally reign on earth like David did, and he will bring peace, though. Everlasting peace that we've been waiting for. But first, he must end the rebellious, Saul-like spirit in us. 
Friends, have you turned from your self-centered life, your soul life, and turned to God? He died the death that you deserved, my friend. Come home to God. Repent from the way of life that seeks just you and receive salvation. It's a gift for all who believe. Is that the theme of your life? Will your life be seen as one who trusts in God? Someone who treasures God above all else? I pray that it is. Let's pray now. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had to sit under your word and again remember the story here in 1 Samuel. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, God. We thank you for the gospel, for Jesus Christ coming, for living with us, for dying for us and rising again. That's why every Sunday we get to come and rejoice. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Because remember again that Christ died and rose again so that we can live with you forever. Father, I pray for those that are seated here that do not know you. Some, in fact, that have been living a religious life for years and decades, but they don't know you. And I pray, God, that you would convict them, that you would give them faith to believe, that they would repent from their life and turn to you. They would trust in you and you alone. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.